Again, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 9. We're working our way through this wonderful uh, text regarding our Lord's uh, healing of this man who was uh, born blind. Uh, John, you know, puts forth a series of signs, miraculous signs, that again prove the fact that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, and that by believing in him, men might have life in his name. It is a story that tells us the miraculous physical healing uh, of this man as the Lord gives him back his physical sight, but it's also a miraculous story of this man being granted uh, spiritual sight, right? And, and it's really a part of the story. It's really the progress of this man's faith. Now, we've worked our way kind of down sort of, I don't know, somewhere around verse 25, I think, last time we started in about verse 13. But I want to go back just to the stop top of the chapter. I just want to bring a recap here. I think it's uh, helpful for the most part if I just read the text so we can get our mind uh, back here again. Then we'll just start working our way forward. So John chapter 9, verse 1, it says, As he, or, or Jesus, passed by, saw a man uh, blind from birth. Remember, Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the temple. He's teaching. He leaves the temple. He walks out, out the gate, and he comes across a man who has been blind, uh, who has never seen. Uh, and and uh, that's a good place for beggars to be there at the temple area because there's many people in and out of the temple. Verse 2, his disciples ask him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, uh, that he should be born blind? And Jesus answered, it was neither the, that this man sinned or his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day night is coming when no man can work. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Verse 6. When he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go uh, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. And so he went away, washed, and came back seeing. Again, here's a man with a congenital defect, a man who's been uh, blind from birth. And Jesus walks up to him and gives him eyes. Right? He's a man who's blind from birth. Jesus walks up to him and gives him eyes. He creates eyes for him instantaneously because Jesus is the creator God. Now, as soon as the miracle becomes uh, apparent, uh, there's a series of um, uh, interrogations, if you will, interviews. Uh, people know that this man who was blind all of his entire life can all of a sudden now see. Verse 8, the neighbors, therefore, and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, this is he. Still others were saying, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. Verse 10, therefore, they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? Now, I don't know how much you can make of this, but they asked the question, how were your eyes opened? They didn't ask who opened your eyes. But nevertheless, this man took the opportunity afforded to him to bear witness uh, of his gracious benefactor. And as Jesus says in Luke 12, verse 8, he says, I say to you, everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man shall confess him also before the angels of God. So to confess Christ means that we tell of the great things that the Lord has done for you. And that's exactly what this man did. And then by way of example, that's something we should do when providentially God gives us opportunities, right, to, to speak forth the glories of Christ. Verse 11, he answered, he said, The man who's called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam, wash. So I went away and I washed and I received my sight. I mean, just a straightforward, a simple uh, testimony to, to what happened. Verse 12, and they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. Verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees who was formerly blind. Now, of course, it's a spectacular miracle and it needs investigation. So the neighbors bring this one who's formerly blind to the religious leaders. And as I suggested to you last time, perhaps they're not doing it out of the best motives. Uh, they're doing it because the religious leaders are exercising control over the people through intimidation. The religious leaders are hostile towards Christ, and everybody knows that. Verse 22 says that his parents, this blind man's parents, were afraid of the Jews. They were afraid of the religious leaders because they had created a law that said if anybody confessed that Jesus is the Christ, they'd be put out of the synagogue. And when you have tyrannical rulers over people, people are in fear. And they want to make sure that they um, don't do anything to be seen on the wrong side of the government uh, governing uh, authorities So they don't, because they, they don't want to get into trouble. So, I mean, again, just think of the situation. Instead of a party, instead of a great 
celebration and rejoicing over the fact that this man who's been blind is now healed. Uh, they feel they need to take this man who was uh, at one time blind and, and take him to the Pharisees so he can be interviewed, interrogated. Why? Because they want to make sure they don't get into trouble with the religious leaders of the day. It's a sad picture, isn't it? It's a sad picture of how man-made religious systems that put burdens upon people rob God's people of joy that God desires for his people to have. Psalm 16, 11, You make known to me the path of life in your presence, there's fullness of joy at your right hand. There's pleasures forevermore. Man-made religious systems burden people's hearts and rob them of the joy that God desires for them. Verse 14, that was on the Sabbath day when he had made the clay and opened his eyes. I told you the religious leaders had heaped all kinds of uh, extra-biblical man-made rules and regulations upon the Sabbath. It was a day designed by God to be a day of rest and spiritual benefit, uh, but the religious leaders had uh, made the Sabbath, in essence, the, the worst day of the week. Therefore, the neighbors who uh, live in fear of these tyrannical uh, religious leaders believe that Jesus has broken rabbinical law uh, concerning the Sabbath, and again, because they don't want to be in trouble with the religious leaders, they turn him in. Again, as I reminded you, the fact that Jesus never broke God's law concerning the Sabbath, he did intentionally violate the laws that uh, the religious leaders had invented in order to expose their hypocrisy, to reveal the fact also that God's mercy knows no calendar, that it's always proper to demonstrate mercy and kindness towards men, even on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees are going to examine this man who has been born blind, and they're going to be, uh, begin their questioning. So I don't remember what I titled the sermon, When Unbelief Examines a Miracle. That's what's going on here. This is unbelief looking at a miracle. Right? So before you even get to, before they even begin the questioning, they've already made up their mind. Right? That's probably not a good way to start. Right? But before they even start the questioning, they've already made up their mind because, again, they hate Christ. Uh, they want him dead. They believe that he's a false teacher, that he's a demon-possessed, that he's insane, that he's a satanic imposter. So again, their investigation is over before it even begins. And again, they've come to their conclusion before the investigation starts. Right? And, and, and that's kind of the way it is, isn't it? isn't it? Even in our own lives, in our own day, with a lot of people, when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ, they've already made up their mind. <laughs> Please don't confuse me with facts or evidence. I already know all that stuff, right? So that's these guys. These guys aren't interested in an honest investigation. They're not interested in an honest look. They're not interested in the event at all. They're not interested in the miracle. And they're not even really interested in this man who was once blind, but now he can see this beggar. Now, if these religious folks, these religious leaders, really represented God, God who's compassionate and gracious and merciful, then this man would never spend his entire life begging because if they really represented God, they would have done something to alleviate his suffering because they knew him, they saw him as they went in and, out, in and out of the temple. But the sad reality is nobody cared for this man. Not the religious leaders, not even his, pen, his parents. He's an outcast. Probably an embarrassment to his parents, unloved by his parents. Again, the question is obvious. If he was loved by his parents, why in the world is he a beggar? Why aren't his parents caring for their son? Now, most people, according to the theology of the day, would have seen him as a, just somebody getting his due, if you will, getting what he deserves because of sin, either his own sin while he was in his mother's womb, which is ridiculous, but again, that's what people thought, or perhaps because of the sin of his parents. Again, that discussion goes on back in verse 2. But nobody until Jesus shows up has any sign of compassion or care or interest in helping this man. Again, the religious leaders are only interested in more information if they can find more information that will accuse or discredit Jesus. Verse 15. Again, therefore, the Pharisees were also asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, I washed and I see. Now he obviously, being Jesus, exactly what he just told his neighbors back up again in verse 11, just a straightforward, honest answer. Six, verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, 
this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Again, this man, Jesus, he's not from God, right? We know that. We know because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. Again, God, Jesus never violated God's Sabbath. Again, he did, he did intentionally violate the non-biblical rules that the religious leaders had heaped upon the Sabbath. Verse 16 goes on but says, But others are saying, How can this man who is a sinner perform such signs? Again, everybody understands the obvious that the true miraculous power belongs to God and God alone. So evidently, this uh, man, Jesus, has some relationship to God. It's what people would say because he, he is enabled by God to do these miraculous signs. So how can he do that if he is a sinner? Verse 16 goes on again. It says, and therefore, there was a division among them. Right? There was division. So now there's a schism. And that's, again, the reality of Jesus Christ. He always brings division. He brings a, brings a sword. Right? Matthew 10 and 34. Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. So again, I've told you from the very beginning of this series in the book of John, every person, every man, woman, and child is going to have to make a decision on what they're going to do with the person of Jesus Christ. Because he is, listen, he is the dividing line of all human history. He is the issue in human history. It's not this president, king, this event in history, this war. No, Jesus Christ, the birth of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the dividing line of all human history. Jesus goes on in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Again, Jesus Christ is the dividing line of all human history. And Jesus Christ demands the place of preeminence in every man, woman, child's life. Verse 16, again, therefore some of the Pharisees were saying this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Uh, again, that's the irrationality of unbelief speaking. And that's the hostility of unbelief. Remember I gave you a quote last time from James Boyce. They, they were ready, the religious leaders were ready to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath but they weren't prepared to let him heal on the Sabbath. I mean, just stop there, back away, and go, yeah, that's insanity, that's stupid, right? That's the irrationality of unbelief, and that's where it leads you. Those kind of issues, those kind of irrational thinkings. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, well, we know, right? We know. We know this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Listen to us, we know. Again, it's willful unbelief. It's irrationality. It's, a, it's hostility. And I told you, unbelief can't be convinced by the truth. This man who was formerly blind has already told them how his sight was restored. But since God's truth can only be understood by faith, these men will never see the reality of what is right before them. So they question him again, verse 17. They said, therefore, to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Now, again, it's an astounding answer from a man who was uh, born, born blind. Again, he's not really being interviewed. He's really more being, uh, it's more of an inquisition than an interview. Because these religious leaders are already hostile towards Christ. And certainly this man is aware of that fact. But he's unfazed by his circumstances. He's uh, not intimidated by the moment. So this man just speaks forth the truth of what he understands about Jesus. And in doing so, you see that his faith is growing, it's advancing. Because again, back up in 11, he said, The man, the man who's called Jesus made clay, anointed my eyes, and said, Go wash, and I washed him, and I received my sight. But here he says, under an interrogation, under a hostile interview, hostile questions of the Pharisees, he goes a step farther. And when they say, What do you think of the man since he opened your eyes? And he says, He's a prophet. He's gone from a man, now he's a prophet. Right? Again, he's not intimidated at all by the moment. He speaks forth the truth of what he understands about Jesus. He is a prophet. And a prophet, again, in the very simplest designation of that term, he is referring to one who is divine. Right? One who is divine. Because a prophet is a mouthpiece of God. And that designation obviously fits very well in the context of John's uh, gospel because that's, isn't that exactly how John revealed Jesus to us on chapter 1, page 1? Right? Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this guy's a prophet, right? It's exactly who he says he is. So here's a man who's physically born blind. Now he has his physical sight restored, and he's beginning to perceive with spiritual eyes. He's beginning to perceive with 
spiritualize the glory of Christ. Again, the Pharisees, the enemies of Christ, are asking, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he says he's a prophet. He's someone sent from God. Again, he gives them a straightforward, simple, honest answer in the light in the light of the circumstances. He, again, his understanding of who Jesus is, Jesus is a prophet. But again, the Jews, the religious leaders, they refuse to see the reality of, and he, of indeed who Jesus is, that he's one sent from God. But the Jews don't believe what this man says to be true. Because skepticism and unbelief is always the default position of the unregenerate. Now, a wonderful miracle of uh, undeniable reality has taken place, uh, but these d- Jews, these religious leaders, are determined not to believe it. Everybody else sees what's gone on, but these religious leaders are determined not to believe it. They refuse to believe the simple, straightforward, emphatic testimony of this one who'd been born, uh, this one who'd been born blind, who's now been the recipient of God's compassion and mercy upon his life. We're not going to believe what we see. And, and, and again. Uh, isn't this what it's like a lot of times in our life when we're talking to people about the Lord? We just start speaking to them about the, the kindness of God in our life, how, how God has changed our life, uh, and, and people don't want to listen to that. They're not interested. Uh, unbelief doesn't want to listen to the truth. Unbelief doesn't want to listen to the testimony that we have, how God has been so kind to us, and we've just been the merciful recipients of, of his life. He's, he's changed us from who we once were to who we are now. Most people that we come in contact with are going to reject the truth. They're going to react in hostility against us and against the gospel and against our testimony, not accepting what we say to be truthful. Because, again, it's only the power of God who can overcome the enmity, the hostility, and the fallen human heart against the truth. It's only the the Lord himself who can open blind eyes to perceive spiritual reality, spiritual truth. Verse 18, the Jews therefore did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. Verse 19, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How, how does he now see? Verse 20, His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but now he sees. Stop right there. Hold the presses, as they say. Right? That's a confirming testimony, right? That's a confirming testimony of this man's parents. Therefore, the Inquisition should have been over. By the testimony of two witnesses, the truth is confirmed. Well, that should have been the end of the case, right? This man who was born blind can now see. How does he see? Well, he sees uh, because someone has opened his eyes. Our son who was born blind now has sight. Conclusion, case over. Therefore, the man who healed him must be from God. Simple logic. But again, unbelief isn't interested in logic. Unbelief isn't interested in truth. It's not interested by evidence. It's not satisfied by evidence. Unbelief is hostile towards evidence. J.C. Rowell said, It is the want of will to believe, not the want of reason for believing, that makes men infidels. It's the want of a desire, the want of will, not the want of reason. Now, remember, I told you previously that miraculous demonstrations of Christ's power during his three years of, uh, of ministry were so numerous that he's virtually banished disease from all Palestine. He just continued to heal one person after another person. And again, it really would have taken only one miraculous demonstration of God's divine power through the person of Christ that should have been uh, enough, just one miraculous event, to confirm the reality that he is no mere man especially in the time that he lives that on the earth, that there's not a lot of uh, people aren't living a, a long time. The world's full of diseases and so forth. The medical sciences and medicine as we know it are uh, uh, in our day are virtually non-existent. No hospital, no medicines, no doctors like we would know. Therefore, pain and suffering and death, disease were everywhere. They just went unchecked. But out of the compassionate heart of Christ, he repeatedly healed everyone. Everyone who came in contact with him healed every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. He healed them all. He even cast out demons. He even cast out demons. He demonstrates his power over the physical realm by walking on water and calming the sea, etc. Et and so forth, over the physical realm as far as uh, spiritual or uh, um, physical and the healing, the natural realm, the physical realm. He demonstrates his power over the demonic realm. Cast out demons. 
And again, the religious leaders of Israel had the audacity to claim that this man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons, Matthew 12 and 34. Again, the intentionality, the irrationality of what Jesus did and repeatedly against the, the truth without question demonstrating the fact that he is the Christ, that he is the son of the living God, that he's God come in human flesh. He's come into the world out of God's kindness and God's tremendous mercy. But again, men who are fallen aren't interested in the truth. Unbelief isn't interested in the truth. Unbelief isn't interested in reality around them. Now stop and think that many people throughout the ministry of Christ, many people were the recipients of his compassion, many people were healed, and many people in those families of members who were healed saw that supernatural power on demonstration. But yet the vast majority of people who either received personally the touch of Christ or who stood by watching uh, um, uh, their loved ones or their friends healed, uh, they were nothing more than temporarily impressed. They they weren't transformed into believing, repenting, and believing on Christ for salvation. They they weren't interested in the reality, the undeniable fact that the man who in front of them, uh, who has just healed their friend or loved one, is God in the human flesh. They're not interested. Entertained, not interested. Because signs and wonders don't convert people on a general it's one of the reasons why the charismatic movement is such a fallacy because they think if they can show that God's powerful through these signs and wonders that people come to Christ. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. The vast majority of people went away from Christ healed, never even turned around to stop and thank him, let alone fell before him in worship. Some did, but very few. Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Verse 20, his parents were answering them and said, we know that this is our son, that he was born blind, but now how does... But how does he now see? We do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. Uh, again, what a sad picture, right? There's not a, you know, get the fatted calf and let's have a party to celebrate this event. No, no, we don't know. Ask him. One commentator I read this week had an apt description of his uh, parents. You might want to write it down. It's a technical theological word that aptly describes them. The word is lame. L-A-M-E, if you're wondering how to spell it. That's these parents. You read this story, and you got to walk away going, what in the world is wrong with these people? What is wrong with these parents? A normal parent would have cared for their child, right? Do you guys have parents, some of you? Right? Do you care for your kids? A normal parent cares for their children, especially one who's born blind. But evidently, these parents didn't. He spent his entire life as a beggar. Again, perhaps the parents are embarrassed by him. But they themselves have done nothing to alleviate his suffering. And again, here in the story, under the pressure of the authoritarian uh, religious leaders, they cave. They are lying. In the vernacular, they're throwing their son under the bus, as it were. They're trying to deflect attention away from themselves because they're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid of the religious leaders who I thought were supposed to be there to help everybody. No, they're afraid of them. Again, John tells us that very thing, verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Now, as I told you previously, to be put out of the synagogue was a pretty serious situation. It was to be cursed in society, to be banned, cut off from your people, to to lose your job, to lose your family, your friends, your community. It meant uh, to be uh, instantaneously an outcast. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Again, they're lying. Most certainly their son had to have told them because he's told everybody else in the neighborhood that he's received his sight. They're lying because, again, they're trying to protect themselves because they're afraid of the Jews, the religious leaders. And again, to be kicked out of the synagogue is a tremendously big deal if you were Jewish. History tells us there's three kinds of excommunication, uh, and, and all of them had social, economic, or religious implications. Uh, there, there are Jewish names for these. I, I won't give them to you, but one type of excommunication was a very short one, somewhere between seven days to 30 days. The second level up was 30 days up to months, maybe even years. And the last level was a permanent ban from the synagogue. 
Again, so to be kicked out of the synagogue uh, was a tremendously big deal, and these parents are fearful of that reality. Fearful, again, from the, uh, the punishment from these tyrannical religious rulers, these tyrannical religious leaders. Arthur Pink has a great comment here at this point. He says, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. Verse 22. He says, they represent a large class of religious professors who surround us on every side today. In such bondage are men and women, otherwise intelligent, to religious leaders and authorities. How true it is that the fear of man bringeth a snare. The only one who is fearless before men are those who truly fear God. This is one of our daily needs to cry earnestly unto the Lord that he, we, that he will put his fear upon us. That's a great statement. Uh, um, the reference is out of uh, Proverbs 22, verse uh, 25, or Proverbs 29, verse 25. Proverbs 29, 25, The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. It's a good reminder in our day. We should not fear tyrannical rulers. We should fear the Lord. We should honor the Lord in everything we do and reject tyrannical leaders. Now, being kicked out of the synagogue, again, wasn't much of a concern for this man born blind. Why? Because he wasn't part of the synagogue to begin with because of his physical infirmity. Right? He's already an outcast, so he's not worried about becoming an outcast. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who'd been uh, blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Give glory to God. Where in the world does that come from, and what does it mean? Well, it's a quote out of uh, Joshua 7, verse 19. Uh, when Joshua, remember the story, Joshua comes to Achan, Achan who's stolen a lot of stuff, buried it under his tent. Uh, when the nation of Israel was told not to take anything, no spoil from those who they were fighting in battle. And, and Joshua finds Achan who stole all these, kind of, uh, all these items, and he and his family have uh, hid them together. Uh, they've conspired to commit this crime, which is going to cost him and his family their lives. And Joshua came to him, and again in Joshua 7, verse 19, he says, Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel. Give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide this from me. So when the Pharisees tell this man who is born blind, give glory to God, basically what they're saying to him is tell the truth. Tell the truth. right? Just like uh, uh, Joshua did to Achan, tell the truth. Because God is glorified when you tell the truth, so tell the truth. So a second time they called a man who had been born blind and said to him, Tell the truth. Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. Again, willful unbelief, irrespective of the truth, we know. We know this man is a sinner. And what the religious, the wicked religious leaders want this man to do is they want him to join in with them in their blasphemous efforts to dishonor Christ. Give glory to God. Tell the truth. We know this man is a sinner. Many commentators have suggested that uh, since these religious leaders believe that Jesus was not from God, that he was a sinner and an imposter, that this uh, man who had anointed his eyes with clay, uh, with clay could not be uh, from God because he was a Sabbath breaker. Uh, they were saying, he's not the one who healed you. Uh, they were saying to him, look, tell the truth and, and give glory to God the Father. Give honor and glory uh, to God the Father for your healing, not glory and honor to this man Jesus Christ, who, or Jesus who stands in, in front of you. But again, this man's undaunted by the pressure, right? Uh, again, this man who is formerly blind uh, does indeed give glory to God. And again, he just very simply tells the truth. <clears throat> he declares the undeniable reality uh, of his situation, the reality of his sight, verse 25. Therefore he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that where I was blind, now I see. So again, the enmity and the hostility of the, uh, of the moment, this man's still unfazed. He's unfazed by the intimidation of the religious leaders. And he refuses to unite himself with those who hate Christ. He flatly refuses to assail the character of the one who has been his benefactor. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. Arthur Pink says that in the Latin Vulgate, it renders this first clause of this verse like this. He says, if he is a sinner, I know not. Uh, Pink says, therefore, the force of the utterance seems to be this. I do not believe that he is a sinner. I will not charge him with being one. Therefore, I refuse to unite with you in saying the fact that he is. So again, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. I don't really believe that he is. I think that's the, the right inference. The one thing I do know that I was blind, but now I see. Again, undaunted by the religious leaders' attempt to blaspheme Christ and to have this man join in their blasphemy and denounce the Lord Jesus. 
Again, this man who was once born blind also refuses to allow the Pharisees to change the issue or to, to sidetrack the point. Because the truth is, the indisputable fact is that he himself was the recipient of this miracle of God's mercy. It was brought to him through this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Jesus Christ, is the one who opened his eyes. So again, in spite of all the intimidation, all the attacks, the arguments of the religious leaders against him, he could not and he would not be shaken from the reality of what happened to him. Therefore, again, he stands his ground and he just fearlessly, flatly, truthfully proclaims the truth. I do not know about him being a sinner, but one thing I do know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. Verse 26, pay, pay careful attention. Verse 26. They said, therefore, to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Uh-oh. Yeah, some of you chuckle. You see what's going on here. I better read it to you again, right? What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Now, didn't they just admit to the fact of the miracle? Didn't they just admit to the fact that he'd been healed? This one who was once blind, but now he sees. How did he open your eyes? You know, this pesky thing called reality, this pesky thing called the truth, evidence right in front of you, the unbeliever refuses it because, again, unbelief is irrational. Unbelief is not moved by evidence. Unbelief is not motivated or moved by reality, uh, even when it's confronting them face to face. They said, therefore, to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? Verse 27, he answered them, I told you already, and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciple too, do you? That's a little bit of snark. Right? It's a little sarcasm. Again, this man knows the truth of what happened. This knows the truth of who has healed him. And again, he is completely unfazed and not afraid of these religious leaders. It is really a bold demonstration and confidence by one who is but a babe in Christ. And perhaps also it's a bit of wisdom for us to not waste our time with those who don't want to hear the truth. Right? He's just repeated to them what he's already told them. And simply and plainly, they just simply and plainly reject because they're not interested in the truth. Well, you're always saying we've got to evangelize our friends, and we do. We need to tell the truth. At some point, I don't know what that point is, but at some point, when people aren't interested in the truth, I think by biblical example, it's you dust your feet off and you go to the next city. Right? And you go to somebody who wants to hear it. He says, look, I just told you. I already told you, don't listen. Why do you want to hear? He answered and said, I told you already, you did not listen. Why do you want to hear again? Again, he understands the moment he is in. He understands the animosity towards Jesus by the religious leaders. And again, sarcastically, the man asked the question, that, uh, or whether the repeated question about Jesus implies that they want to become his followers. Right? You, do you want to become a follower of a disciple, or you do not want to become his disciples too, or also do you? Verse 28 says they reviled him. Uh, the word means they heaped abuse upon him. They, they hurled anathemas against him. <clears throat> because when somebody is defeated in a debate, when they can't support their position, they resort to verbal abuse, vilification. So when you find a man calling their opponent, uh, opponents hard or slanderous names, it's a sign that that person has been defeated. They reviled him. They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Again, these religious leaders, these elite of the elite, as they looked at themselves, have been defeated by the beggar. And reacting to this man's mockery, they retreat back to the safety of their supposed loyalty to, to Moses. Uh, here's an uneducated beggar who wants to follow Jesus. Well, if he wants to follow Jesus, let him follow Jesus. He, he's an outcast, and Jesus is an outcast, and he can do that. You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. Well, it's a, bo it's a baseless claim. Right? It's a, 
a, a lofty boast because Jesus had already told these guys back in chapter 5, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. Again, you can say anything you want, but this is a baseless claim. We know that God had spoken to Moses, verse 29. <clears throat> well, that's true that God had spoken through Moses. But these men, these religious leaders, don't believe what Moses has said. Because Moses has pointed to Jesus, who's standing right in front of them, and they refuse to believe upon him. They refuse to believe the one who Moses spoke to, standing in their very presence. Again, just like a lot of religious people, like a lot, a lot of religious individuals, they venerate their traditions. They uh, venerate the, the stories that people have gone before them and told them right the religious leaders of the past handed down to them the situations and stories handed down to them by their forefathers uh, but the, the, the truth doesn't motivate them uh, the truth has no effect upon their heart again we know that god has spoken to moses but as for this man they don't even speak his name right they don't even say jesus but as for this man we do not know where he's from now one writer makes a comment he, he says he goes it's a pretty remarkable statement and this is the point that I like by the writer. He said, because it's both false and ironically true. We don't know where he's from. It's a false and ironically true statement. Because back in chapter 7, verse 41 of the book of John, we know that the Lord was from Nazareth. Someone asked the question, shall the Messiah come out of Galilee? So they knew that he was from Galilee, that he was from Nazareth, Galilean. But the one thing that is ironically true, they don't know his real origin. They don't know Jesus' real origin. They should have because he's told them that reality numerous times. But they refuse to listen. Repeatedly he has told them that he was from heaven sent by the Father. John 8 and 28. He was saying to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. But again, it's pride. It's the rejection of a divine revelation that shuts people off from the truth. God often reveals things to babes in Christ. Uh, which he hides from the, uh, the wise and the self-righteous because they're wise in their own eyes. They're conceited. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become foolish, that he may become wise. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. Now here, again, the religious leaders of Israel, they're supposed to be the guides, right? They're supposed to be directing people towards God. They're supposed to have all knowledge concerning all points concerning God. These men who thought so high of themselves and so lowly of everybody else, especially this beggar. Well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. Now, again, it's a miracle that everybody attested to to be true, a reality. Therefore, again, the obvious conclusion, the one who opened the blind man's eyes, the one who created eyes for him, this man has to be from heaven. Because, again, it's only God the creator that can do these things. It's God alone that can give sight to the blind. And that's exactly what the Old Testament said about the Messiah when he would come, that these guys supposedly knew so well. It was predicted of the Messiah that when he came, he would do these very things. Isaiah 40, uh, 42 and 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out the prisoners of the dungeons and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. Well, religious leaders, when Messiah shows up, this is what exactly what he's going to do. And what is this man doing in front of you? Exactly what the Old Testament text said that Messiah would do when he showed up. Psalm 146, verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. So it's only God who does this, right? It's only God who opens the eyes of those who are born blind. And, and, and here you have a group of people who put themselves forward as authoritative, right? We're the authoritative interpreters of God and his word but they don't know anything. They don't know anything about this man who does the work of God. This man answered and said to them, well, here's an amazing thing that you do not know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. So again, right in their very presence, Jesus did for this man what only the, the text of Scripture says only God himself can do, only God in his own power can do. He created for him new eyes. Therefore, this humble beggar begins to... Uh, hold a theology class he's going to give a theological lecture to these uh, so-called intellectual religious elites 
these insolent religious leaders of Israel. Verse 31. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Verse 32, since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind, which is a historical reality. Never happened to anybody before, right? That somebody born blind had received their sight. Therefore, the undeniable conclusion must be verse 33. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So, so again, you see the man's faith is growing. Again, his first reference to uh, Jesus back in uh, verse 11, he referred to him as the man who's called Jesus. The second reference in verse 17, uh, this formerly blind man calls Jesus a prophet. And here in, in verse, 33, 40, uh, verse 33, he declares Jesus to be from God. From God. Now, the religious leaders are outraged by this man's logic. They're outraged by the truth. And the religious leaders do what you do again when you lose an argument. You start to heap personal uh, abuse on your opponent. So they heap personal abuse on this man, verse 34. They answered and said to him, you were born entirely in sin, and you were teaching us. Right? They have nothing but contempt and scorn for this man who's born blind, who was born blind from birth, but now he sees. Again, a reality that they themselves were forced to admit. Outraged at this unlearned beggar who would dare to challenge and teach them, the next part of that verse says they put him out. Since they can't answer the argument, since they can't answer the man's logic, they get physical with him. They throw him out. And again, that's exactly what happens when unbelief investigates a miracle. The irrationality, the harshness, the hardness, the hostility of unbelief. When you can't win the argument, you get aggressively, physically hostile. Just like people have done on unbelievers all throughout the generations. Uh, even religious unbelievers who've rejected the gospel. What have they done with God's people throughout the history of God's proclamation of the truth? They have abused God's people. Many, many of God's men have been martyred throughout history. The unbeliever, even the religious unbeliever, has poured out threats and slaughter against the unbeliever, just, uh, against the believers, exactly what they did in the early chapters of the book of Acts. Just like the unbelievers, all, when you, by the time you come to the book of Acts, just like the unbelievers have already crucified Christ, the unbelievers, unbelieving religious leaders have crucified Christ, the Messiah at the hands of the Romans, because that's what unbelief does. It persecutes the truth. Now, I told you uh, earlier, I think I mentioned it this morning, but I know I did a couple times back, that in the Scripture, uh, blindness is used metaphorically to represent fallen man's corruption, uh, his, his inability to comprehend divine truth. And the condition of every man born in this world since the fall is that we're all born spiritually blind. We all lack the ability to understand spiritual truth. Uh, Isaiah 43 and 8, bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes. Jeremiah 5, 21, hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not. Uh, Isaiah, speaking of the uh, corrupt spiritual leaders in Israel, Isaiah 56, 10, his watchmen are blind. All of them know nothing. Jesus, in his confrontation with the religious leaders several times, Matthew 15 uh, uh, Matthew 23, uh, he, he denounced the Pharisees as blind guides, blind men. When, when Paul was called by Christ, according to Acts 26, and when he was sent to, with uh, the gospel to the nations, he, he was sent to open their eyes, Acts 26, verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the domain of Satan to God. All of unredeemed humanity, Paul told the Ephesians, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, uh, Ephesians 4 and 18. In the book of the Revelation, the risen Lord Jesus Christ rebukes the, the lukewarm congregation at Laodicea, Revelation 3.17. You say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. You do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, and blind and naked. So the Bible speaks metaphorically of blindness, uh, of spiritual ignorance. Spiritual darkness, corruption. Again, the inability to understand or to know uh, God is to know his truth. And biblically, there are three kinds of, uh, of blindness. Uh, as the story started out, you have physical blindness. Uh, physical blindness in a world full of sin, uh, a, a fallen world. 
And then there's the blindness that is um, compounded by Satan uh, and Satan's power, Satan's deceptive power. Second uh, Corinthians four three. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the uh, of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So you have physical blindness. You have this compounded blindness by Satan and his power of deception. And then, thirdly, you have judicial blindness, right? Natural blindness, satanically influenced blindness. And then you have judicial judgment that brings blindness. Some have called this terminal blindness. Terminal blindness. Isaiah forty-four eighteen. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes... Uh, the ESV has shut, says they shut their eyes, plastered over their eyes, the NIV. They do not know, they do not understand, for it is smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot comprehend. That's terminal blindness. That's judicial blindness. That's exactly what God said to a people, what happened to a people when they continued to reject his truth. God said repeatedly over and over again, Isaiah uh, uh, six and nine. He said, go tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, return and be healed. That's judicial blindness. Isaiah 29 and nine. Be delayed, wait, blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, not with wine. They stagger, not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes. Right? Those who permanently refuse to believe Jesus as the Christ or to believe in Jesus as Christ one day will not be able to believe. John 12 and 39, for this cause, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he blinded their eyes, he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with the heart and be converted and not heal them. Again, it's judicial blindness, judicial judgment. Paul wrote uh, of unbelieving Israel, uh, Romans eleven eight. just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to not see, ears to not hear, down to this very day. So you have physical blindness in a fallen world. You have satanically induced, satanically encouraged, ramped up, if you will, blindness, uh, the little g-god of this world doesn't want people to see the light of the glory of Christ, which is a damning reality. <clears throat> and then you have a terminal blindness, the judgment of God, where God gives men over to their sin and their corruption, and, and, and in their rejection of Christ and of the truth, he gives them over not only to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper, but he brings intentional blindness on them so they continue to walk in the path that they have chosen, and that path is darkness. Eyes but cannot see. That's the sinner. Isaiah 5 and 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. To those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, Romans 1 and 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Right? The entire unbelieving world is full of people who participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness ephesians 5 and 11 it's because they're from the domain of darkness colossians 1 and 13 jesus says of uh, those who call themselves believers or john says of those who call themselves believers first john 1 and 6 if we have say we have fellowship with him with jesus and yet walk in the darkness we lie and, and don't practice the truth john first uh, john 2 and 11 the one who hates his brother is in darkness, is in the darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, the Bible uses blindness and darkness as a metaphor for the condition of sinners. And in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament started to talk about the Messiah and his coming, he, the, the, the writer always talked about Messiah coming and bringing light, the Messiah coming to open eyes. Again, Isaiah 42 and 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will uphold you by the hand which I watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to people and as light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, those who dwell in the darkness from the prison. Isaiah 9 and 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
Isaiah 49, 6. He says, Is it too small a thing uh, that you should be my servant to raise up uh, the tribes of Jacob to restore the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nation so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 16, 1. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness of the peoples. And the Lord, but the Lord will raise you up or raise upon you and his glory will appear upon you and nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Zechariah, the son or the father of John the Baptist said of the Messiah, uh, Luke chapter one, verse 79, he will come and he will shine on those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and guide our feet to the way of peace. Matthew quoting Isaiah's prophecy concerning the Messiah and his ministry, Matthew 4 and 16, the people who are sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who are sitting in the land of the shadow of death upon them the light dawned. And what has Jesus just said about himself back in chapter 8? Chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but he shall have the light of life. John 12 and 46, I have come as a light to the world and everyone who believes in me may not re- that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness for us and our own personal salvation again colossians 1 and 13 we have been rescued from the domain of darkness transferred into the kingdom of god's beloved son because we've been called out of darkness into god's marvelous light first peter 2 and 9 so here's a story in john 9 about physical blindness and in the concluding verses of the chapter the story is going to move from physical blindness to spiritual blindness the the man who is born blind is going to increase his spiritual sight and understanding where the religious leaders are going to continue to have their eyes shut because of their rejection of the truth because of their rejection of the messiah Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out. In finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, "Uh, and who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. I'm telling you, this is a remarkable portion of Scripture. A lot for us to consider as the story changes from physical blindness to judicial judgment. Terminal blindness. Much that we need to consider, but we're going to have to wait, Lord willing, until we get together next time.